Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. It was just obvious that that was a void, and we thought that there were enough people in Knoxville and Knox County who did care and did want to know that we would be able to kind of fill that niche and provide that kind of news coverage that others just weren't willing to to provide anymore. Welcome, everyone, to the Misinterpreted Public Relations Demystified podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here today with our Fletcher Director of Media Relations, and that is Allison Lester. Thank you for being with us, Allison. Thanks for having me again. I think it's your first time on the podcast co-hosting since you came back from maternity leave. Yeah, it is. Now she has a cute little baby boy, Rivers, who's a little over three months now. So congratulations. Thank you. We just love him. He's so cute. He's like our new little mascot. <laughs> well, we're talking about something today that I know is near and dear to your heart and important to you, and that is hyper-local journalism. And I asked Chat GPT what hyper-local journalism is just because I was curious and Also, I thought some of our listeners might be thinking, oh, what do you mean by hyper-local journalism? And it refers to a form of journalism that focuses on reporting news and information at a very local level, typically targeting specific neighborhoods, communities, or even individual streets. It emphasizes coverage of local events, issues, and stories that directly impact the immediate vicinity, including topics like local government, community events, business updates, neighborhood developments, and other hyper-specific news that may not receive attention from larger media outlets. So I guess it was about 10 years ago, we're going to ask him, Jesse Mayshark and Scott Barker, who are both former journalists and also have worked on the public relations side, started a hyper-local news media outlet for Knoxville, the city of Knoxville, called Compass. And I've subscribed, I think, since the very beginning. And it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Scott and Jesse. Thank you very much. We're happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. And what year was it that you all started at Compass? Well, it seems like 10 years some days, but actually it was five years ago, almost to the day. Oh my gosh, it feels like it's so much longer. (laughs) I think COVID felt like, instead of three years, it felt like three decades of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Just have to measure the things BC before COVID. So tell us a little bit about Compass and why you started it. I've really enjoyed being a journalist. I was uh, at the News Sentinel for about 18 years. I got laid off, as so many in the uh, industry have been. I worked for a year in public relations, and then uh, then we launched Compass in 2018. Why Knoxville? I mean, what was the need that you saw here in Knoxville specifically that you thought you could meet? Well, for me, the impetus really came from my time out of journalism, which, you know, I had left in 2011, partly because it seemed like it was getting harder to sustain a career in journalism. At that point, I was back working at Metropulse, the former all-weekly here in Knoxville, which was by then owned by the new Sentinel. And I started to feel really uneasy about the future of Metropulse specifically, because I saw all of the cuts uh, across the industry and and the cuts that the new Sentinel at that point was making. And I just thought that something bad was going to happen. And I was right. So 
you know, I, I uh, went to work for the city, which I really did enjoy. And then Metropolis did get shut down three years later. And so that kind of bore out my concerns there. But then during the time I was working at the city, you know, I was working in communications and really felt the growing uh, void in local coverage of local government, local affairs. You know, we at the city were constantly putting out information, kind of trying to let people know what we were doing or trying to engage the public in various, you know, discussions about everything from downtown parking to homelessness and so forth. And it was it got very hard to get the attention of the local media. And I realized that that was because they just had fewer and fewer people to spread around to all of these different areas they were trying to cover. And so uh, it, for me, it kind of came to a head one year where we had our annual budget hearing, which is a day long hearing and city council goes through the whole proposed budget. And, you know, they're talking about spending, I forget what it was at that point, $350 million or something, a lot of money, a lot of major priorities. And there, were, there was nobody there from the local media at all, like all day. And I just thought, how is anybody who's even trying to find out what's going on, who doesn't have time themselves to come down and spend all day watching city council, how's anyone supposed to find out what's going on? And so it just seemed like a real gap to me. And that led to then some conversation with with, uh, with Scott, who can fill in his side of that story. Yeah, of course, one of the things during the later years in, in my tenure at the New Sentinel, I'm, no, you know, we, the paper scaled back its local coverage and uh, particularly in, on government and politics and did, it was uh, just devoted uh, less and less time and fewer resources to it. Then of course I got laid off. It seemed like it even got even worse after I left. I was an editor at the time that I got laid off, but. Of course it got worse when you left. Scott. Of course it did. <laughs> but uh, it, I, that had nothing to do with it. They were just continually pulling back. And when Jesse and I were talking, it was it was just obvious that that was a void. And we thought that there were enough people in Knoxville and Knox County who did care and did want to know that we would be able to kind of fill that niche and provide that kind of news coverage that others just weren't willing to, to provide anymore. Yeah. And I remember you launched in a very grassroots way, I think, Mike Cohen, a mutual friend of ours who's been in new journalism and PR, called me up and said, hey, let's go have a beer with Jesse and Scott and hear about what they're starting up. And I think we went over to Casual Pint and you all told me about it. And I thought, thank God that somebody's taking this on because you're right. It was hard to find out what was going on. And and I understand why the cuts have had to be made. But it's sad when you pick up a newspaper and it's you know, maybe 25% of the content it used to be or the thing you pick it up and you're like, what, this is the paper. It's so thin. It's, it doesn't even feel like a newspaper. But I'm curious, when you launched Compass, how did your media competition respond? Did they embrace the idea or were you a perceived competitive threat? I think it's probably have to ask them, although I don't know how many of the people <laughs> how many of the people who were there when we started are still there because you know there's a lot of churn in in uh, local media but i think that we flew under the radar a little bit in the sense that we were not a threat to anybody's business model in an obvious way because from the beginning we weren't going after advertising we actually do have a little bit of advertising now in our daily email 
But we've been uh, subscriber based from the beginning and most media still remains pretty heavily dependent on advertising. So I don't think anyone necessarily perceived us as kind of trying to come in and take away their market share. Right. Yeah. And it was more expensive too to subscribe to Compass. How many subscribers do you have now? We're right around 1,700 paid subscribers. You know, we launched with 300 when we started, and it's basically grown incrementally every month since. Almost every month, we end up with more subscribers than we started with. I can actually answer the question you just asked a minute ago, Kelly, about how other media perceived them, because I was the assistant news director at the NBC affiliate when Compass launched. And I think that we saw the same thing you were seeing, that we were unable to devote a reporter to go sit at City Hall all day. And especially when you talk about the churn and broadcast, we had reporters who'd been living in Knoxville for four months. And how could we expect them to have a a deep enough understanding about the issues at hand to even know what to listen for at city council meetings and county commission meetings and to even know who to look for. And I I mean that in no disrespect to young journalists who are serving our community now, but there was just a great lack of the resources needed to cover government and do it well. And my colleague at the time, who you both know very well, because you worked with them as well, John North, I think saw that you guys could actually be a resource. Um, I I do believe there there were some attempts to, to even partner and have you guys on to talk about some of the things you were covering. Now, I don't know that that ended up working out in a long term way. But I, from where I was sitting, I think that we saw the same thing you were seeing and, and didn't see you as competition because we felt like we're not doing it. You know, we're not covering every county commission and city council meeting and doing a good job of covering government. So we were glad that somebody was. Yeah, one thing that kind of happened is, is there has been a kind of a fragmentation in the in the whole media world. And to your point, the, the TV stations in Knoxville have a much broader geographic audience too. Their geographic footprint is way beyond Knox County and we focus only on Knox County. That hyper local bit that Kelly mentioned and I think that that initially nobody did. I do think that eventually I think the New Sentinel increased its its local government coverage after a while once we got established a little bit, but uh, I think that we put 100% of all our resources into that and nobody else around here does. And that's fine with us. We can live with that. Well, and I do think that, or I like to think that we serve a little bit of a valuable role in helping to flag issues for the rest of the local media and kind of saying, you know, hey, here's this thing that's going to be on the school board agenda next week. And it's actually kind of a big deal for these reasons. And I think we see effects from that where then people will show up to some of those meetings because we've. I actually got a funny text from somebody who works in uh, communications for a local agency that I won't name, but they had a meeting the other week and it was just a regular meeting that usually nobody pays any attention to, but we had happened to write uh, and we do a weekly roundup of upcoming civic meetings and we had highlighted that one there. And so I got a text from their communications person saying, darn it, you guys put our meeting in in your thing and now we've got all these reporters here. So (laughs) I, I do think that we have some effect in kind of helping to not drive 
local coverage necessarily, but it, but at least sort of flag things for the rest of the local media. That's really important. Yeah, sometimes we will cover issues or a topic that nobody else has, has covered to that point. And then the next thing you know, one of the other media outlets will be covering it as well. And while you can't always say that's cause and effect, I think that, that sometimes it is. That, as Jesse said, we've kind of flagged it as saying, okay, we think this is important. And then other people will look at it and say, yes, we agree. And so we'll cover it now. So, and that's fine. So I'm curious, we're rounding out ethics month in journalism and communications here at the end of September when we're recording this. And I just would like your opinion on what you see happening regarding ethics and journalism at a macro level, maybe with some of the big national media outlets. And then what do you see happening with ethics and journalism, if anything, has changed at the local level? Well, I think that there's a lot of interesting discussion going on in the profession and has been really a lot of it prompted by the Trump era. And you've seen a lot of debate, hand-wringing to some degree about, you know, how can conventional media continue to operate in a landscape that has changed a lot in terms of where people are getting information what sources of information people consider credible. Obviously, you have people, some people at the national level and also to some degree at the state and even local levels who spend a lot of time trying to denigrate media and reporters and and journalists and kind of discredit the entire profession as being untrustworthy. And I, I think that a lot of you know, convent mainstream journalists have struggled with how do you respond to that? I mean, one response is you just keep doing your job the way you've always done it. You try to treat everybody fairly and and you report the facts as best you can determine them. And that's kind of a baseline. I mean, I think that's something everybody still agrees on, I hope, who is really trying to practice real journalism. But I also think there's a sense that that's not necessarily enough, you know, that you need to be a little more, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but confrontational, maybe, about taking on disinformation, taking on, like, there was a longstanding practice in journalism of kind of not responding to a lot of criticism. You know, you understand that people have the right to criticize you, and we all accept that. But when you see people and hear people criticizing either you individually or the profession as a whole, I think there probably is a need to respond a little more directly than has maybe been true in the past and to really make the case to people about what journalism is and what it isn't. You know, that journalism is a practice. It's not an ideology. It's a way of looking for sifting through, analyzing and presenting information so that you can provide people with the most reliable perspectives and and context possible. And I think that we overall in the profession just haven't done a good enough job explaining explaining what our ethics are. You know, I think if you ask a lot of people about journalism ethics, they'll just laugh and say journalists don't have ethics, but we do, you know, and, and we have pretty strong ethics regardless of what our individual political views or anything else are, we, we have ways of doing this job that are rooted in now more than a century of sort of professional tradition and experience. 
And so I, I think that partly it's that journalism itself has had to evolve, but partly it's that we just need to do a better job about really explaining to people what we do and, and why and how we do it. I totally agree. I'm constantly defending my journalist friends because you all just get completely torn down and berated and lumped into one giant category in a way that I've, I don't think that I've ever seen one specific profession. <laughs> Um, lumped together like that before until the past however many years that some of the big local cable outlets in particular have become very partisan. So it's become more tedious to even consume news. And I'm obsessed with news and I consume a lot of it. But you have to do a lot of fact checking. You have to do a lot of going down rabbit holes to make sure that what you're reading is is factual. And you have to watch different perspectives in on different news outlets and then kind of aggregate your own opinions and your own thoughts and in my opinion these days it's you just can't it's no longer the days of turning on Walter Cronkite and then just everything he said is the is the word so I'm curious I like what you say about ethics I wish you all would do something on ethics and maybe just talk about ethics and journalism as some sort of awareness campaign. That would be great. And I'm also curious about what you've seen change the most in journalism over the past five years since you started Compass and, you know, went from being in business a couple years to straight into a pandemic in your first, you know, first five years. What's changed in the media landscape? Well, other than using Zoom a lot and not being able to be at being at public meetings and, and meeting people in person. One of the values of going to public meetings isn't, I mean, yeah, they're gonna, there'll be one or two issues that they'll vote on. You want to be there to get the discussion and get them, you know, record the votes and get people to know. But you also get those in, that interaction with people. When I go to city council meetings and I cover city council for us, that gives me an opportunity to go up to the mayor and ask the mayor questions about other stories, you know, before or after the meeting, or city council members, or members of the mayor's staff, or people from the general public. I mean, you that making connections and talking to people in conversations that that might pay off with a story, you know, a month from now, or six months from now, or a year from now. Those are the kind. That's the kind of journalism that is possible when you have that in person. Now, the longer term, what, the big thing that's happened was, at least in print journalism, or what used to be print journalism, it's all pixel journalism now anyway, but at the News Sentinel, and when I was the first 10, 15 years I was there, you know, the editorial meetings were about, you know, what are the important stories? What's going on? What's interesting? What's new? What's, you know, what's going on? Toward the end of, before I got laid off from there, it had turned into what stories are people clicking on, you know, and and that began to drive coverage as much, if not more than your journalistic idea, you know, you're, you're relying on your experience and knowledge and, and instincts to know that, that, you know, this issue is important. Well, that's part of what drove, I think, the, the walking away from local news coverage and that, you know, a lot of times it, the, Sounds like we're picking on a news sentinel. Don't want to do that because this happens. This is happening all over the country. The front page, their their homepage of their website. A lot of there are a lot of sports stories on there. There's a lot of stuff on there because that's what drives their audience. And it's harder to find local news coverage 
there and uh, uh, and it's all it's all driven by by and I understand it but that's that you know, we're different in that we are not driven by that we are we look at things and kind of it's kind of old-fashioned really and that we look at things and decide or you know determine which issues are big and new and and that people need to know about yeah and and that are going to affect people's lives, whether they're aware of it or not. And so, you know, a zoning code update, we will write six or seven stories about a zoning code update. Now, very few people are going to read even one story about a zoning code update, but for the people who are interested in it, who have an actual either personal or professional need to know about it, we want that information to be there. And the other thing is we do believe in that kind of classic watchdog role you know, I think sometimes people think the watchdog role is all about uncovering scandal and wrongdoing, and definitely that can be part of it. A big part of the watchdog role is literally just the watching part. Like it's good for the people who are making decisions to know that somebody is paying attention to them, because I very firmly believe that it does affect how they operate and what decisions they make and how transparent they are and, and so forth. So yeah, sometimes I say that we've kind of, it's like we looked at your old fashioned traditional daily newspaper and we picked we deliberately picked the least sexy parts and said, we're going to focus on these because we think they're important, even though they are almost never the ones that are going to drive clicks, you know? Sure. So talking about PR, you guys both worked in the PR realm in some, some way, shape, form or fashion and working on the, the journalism side of things. I'm always interested to know what are some of the biggest PR blunders you've covered in your time? Well, I think the biggest, I don't want to be too specific about everything, but you know the biggest blunder that that someone in PR can make is lying. I mean, that's just you know bottom line. And you know, good PR firms, uh, at least for my in my opinion, you're, you're you guys are the expert on that. But in my opinion, the the best PR firms, you know, will sure they'll take the facts and they they will put their clients in the best possible light based on those facts, but to lie, to to give us those alternative facts, as some would say, uh, is is the absolute worst thing that anybody could do. It's happened a few, it doesn't really happen that often. It has happened. I, I remember one time doing that with a government agency and an investigative piece that I'd done. And it was a, a big story that was going to run on a Sunday and the entire week before every day, I asked the spokesperson for this agency, about something and they they kept saying no this didn't happen no this didn't happen no this didn't happen finally on friday i just said listen it happened i've got you know all the documentation i've got all this stuff you know i do and you know it happened and they kept saying no it didn't i had basically right i didn't that was the the pre-trump days where nobody ever wrote that someone was a liar but i did about the closest you can do to say that you know what they're saying is not accurate, and that's the biggest blunder I think is just just trying to instead of spin the journalist or spin the public, you you deceive the public, and I think that's that's the the biggest blunder you can make. Ooh, I might have to take y'all out for another beer and try to get the backstory on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you an example of one that I saw from the inside when I worked at the city, and I was the director of communications at the time that this happened. And of course, as the director of communications, you never want to be surprised by anything. And that was always what I tried to reinforce to all of our department heads and, of course, the mayor and everybody. 
And there was one issue that had to do with uh, the police department had a Bible verse on the wall in its office. It wasn't even in a place that was very visible to the public, but it was a place that some members of the public would come in and out of. A complaint had been filed about that by a group for the separation of church and state. And we were aware of this complaint. As far as I knew, the last I'd heard from the law department, like he wasn't worried about it. It was fine. You know, we were just going to dismiss this complaint or whatever. And so I wasn't even thinking about it. And then suddenly I woke up one morning and my phone was blowing up because unbeknownst to me, a sequence of events had happened whereby, first of all, the law department had decided, oh yeah, we do actually need to change this. They had communicated that to the police department. The police department had gotten mad about it. This all happened over the course of one day. And the police chief sent out an email to his entire staff basically berating the mayor's office for this decision and saying how sad it was that we live in a time where we're going to have to take down this Bible verse. Some members of his staff then forwarded that email to a new Sentinel reporter who had then called the law director and talked to him about it. And he had given some comments about it. And nobody bothered to tell the communications director that any of this was happening. Oh, man. So by the time... By the time I heard about it the next morning, it was in the News Sentinel and the mayor, whose birthday it happened to be, had woken up to 60 messages on her voicemail from people telling her she was going to hell because <laughs> of this. And all, I mean, I was, of course, uh, furious, first of all, <laughs> that this has all happened without anybody talking to me about it. It's like, I'm the communications guy, you know, let me know what we're doing here. And that was one where we just decided all we could do was call a press conference, call everybody in and kind of just have everybody fall on their sword about it, <laughs> and talk through it publicly and take responsibility for it. But to me, it was just an illustration of if you're going to do PR well, yes, you need to think about, you know, those exterior forces, you know, the media or unhappy customers or whoever they are. But bad communications internally will mess you up just as much as anything else. And making sure that you have those lines of communication established and reinforced internally is just really, really important. Very well said. So speaking of the relationship between PR and journalists, we deal with you guys on a daily basis and vice versa. So how do you think that we could work together better? And I don't mean me and you specifically, but journalists and PR professionals what are some of your pet peeves that you get uh, with PR pros? Well, one thing I think is that, that uh, listening to each other really helps. Uh, <laughs> uh, listening to, you know, from, from the journalism side, listening to the PR professionals about what, they're, what they're, they're trying to get across, obviously. And also on the PR side, listening to the journalist about what the journalist is looking for as well. And, and to go back to what I said earlier, trust telling each other the truth, you know, if, when you're a journalist, you know, if you tell a PR person you're going to be doing this story and you end up doing something else and you deceive them, then then that doesn't do you any good either. So there's got to be some kind of level of trust there when you're, you're sharing information. Totally agree. Yeah. And I think that as a reporter, I have always appreciated good public relations uh, information, communications people. And I have seen it as a useful way to get access to information, get access to people or interviews that I'm interested in. And the people who I value the most are the ones who, first of all, facilitate that. 
you know, helping me get the information, get access, or if they can't provide access to things, just explaining why in a, in a straightforward way. I mean, I understand I can't always get everything I want, but that goes to that kind of mutual respect that Scott's talking about where like, I want to at least feel heard and understood what I'm looking for and, and then, you know, have a reasonable, and if it has to be an off, I'm always happy as a reporter to talk off the record to people too. And I actually appreciate it sometimes when a PR person says, well, like, I can't answer that, but if we can talk off the record, I can tell you more about what's going on. And I always say, sure, because I know I'm not going to get anything on the record anyway. So I'd rather at least be able to kind of understand the situation. It might point me in another direction that I can, can explore. And then, you know, I, I think one advantage that Scott and I have right now, and this is very specific to the market that we're in and, and our experience in it, we know and in a lot of cases have worked with in the past a lot of the local communications people because a lot of them came out of journalism. And so like uh, Carly Harrington at the school system, especially people in the public sector, Mike Danilla at the county, Eric Vreeland and Kristen Farley at the city, all of these are former journalists. The University of Tennessee Communications Department is full of former journalists, as is ORNL. And so it's nice for us because we all basically understand the deal, you know, they've been in my position. I've been in their position. In fact, like with Carly and Mike, I was a communications person at the city when they were reporters. I used to deal with them as reporters and now we're exactly reversed. And so we're able to have, I think, much more sort of candid conversations with each other than uh, you can necessarily expect just because we have that background and, and that history. And I was the one who hired Carly away from the new Sentinel initially. So that's right. <laughs> Took her to the dark side. Oh, as- yeah. Well, yeah. We were pretty mad about that, too, by the way. Just, <laughs> you know. Allison calls it the dark side. I don't I don't <laughs> think it is. I think it's, oh, no. it's the bright side. It is. But that's what that's what people in journalism used to call it. Leaving journalism to go over to the dark side. Oh, wow. That's that's interesting. Well, I'm curious about how you monetize Compass because obviously it's both of your full-time jobs, I think. So talk to me a little bit about how do you monetize a hyper-local media outlet? What we did when we looked at this is we looked at several models because we obviously needed to make a living doing this. And as Jesse alluded to earlier or mentioned earlier, you know, most media outlets rely on advertising for their funding. And uh, what we did is we did some research. We did about, what, 10, 11 months of research, I think, on uh, uh, before we launched Compass. One of the things we did was look at models. We looked at, there's a, a great resource, an organization of, of independent online publishers, and they would have interviews with, with publishers doing similar things to what we were doing, hyper-local journalism. And they all relied on, on advertising, and they all said that that was the hardest part of it because they would spend all their, their time working on trying to get and keep advertising advertisers rather than journalism. And so we wanted to do journalism. So uh, we looked at other models where you relied on subscriptions, so we and we looked at the number of people we thought would be would subscribe to something like Compass and decided that we thought we could make a go of it by just charging subscription fees and not advertising. So that's what we did. And that's, as Jesse mentioned earlier, we we do have a little bit of advertising in our daily newsletter. 
the newsletter goes out five days a week to all our subscribers and it's got a lot of news in it in and of itself and we do have some advertising in that but primarily you know the money comes from subscribers so if people and it's a straight just straight up capitalism if you value the news that we provide and pay us for it we'll give it to you you know and that's mm-hmm. that's the problem good for you i think that's fantastic and it's and it's not that expensive it's like ten dollars a month or uh, less if you pay in a bundle by you know biannually or annually so it's very reasonable yeah, we actually just raised our rates to $12 a month for the first time. At, we marked our five-year anniversary with our first ever rate increase, which was, you know, really just to keep pace with the inflation that we have all been uh, experiencing. And we actually had been encouraged by some of our subscribers to raise our rates. <laughs> they said, I'm worried about you guys. I kind of think of it as like uh, akin to the farmer's market uh, approach where it's like, you know, we're not a supermarket. <laughs> we we only produce a couple of things, but if you like the things we produce, we set up our little booth and you can come by and buy them from us, basically. <laughs> the farmer's market of journalism. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how do you see or hope to see Compass evolve as you continue to grow? I think that we have already started to evolve a little bit, which has primarily taken the form of Uh, Well, so for one thing, we added our own podcast about a year and a half ago. So we do that every week, which probably mostly reaches our existing subscribers. But of course, part of the hope with it is that because it is free, unlike our content, which is paywalled, that it's a way to engage people who aren't subscribers yet, who then might become subscribers. But we have also just in the last year started to add some regular freelance contributors. So About once a week or at least three times a month, probably, we have uh, either columns or articles by other people, which is a reflection, first of all, of the fact that we're making enough money now to afford to do that. So that's nice. And then secondly, it helps take a little bit of that burden off of us because we're publishing five days a week. And that's just a lot for two people to produce. And then also, I think it is beneficial to our readers in just providing voices that aren't us. I mean, I get tired of listening to us sometimes, you know, there's, it's just the two of us writing everything. And so having a little bit more variety of of voice and subject matter there, I think helps a lot. So I think what we would hope is just to continue to grow and build more resources. I would like to see Compass reach a point where it could survive without one or even both of us at some point in the future. Right now, that's certainly not the case. And so if if you want to talk about something that can make a lasting difference in the local media landscape, it would be nice for it to reach a level where eventually, first of all, we could afford to bring other people in, but then also at some point, you know, maybe one or both of us aren't doing this anymore. And uh, we wouldn't want the whole thing to just go away at that point. Yeah, eventually, eventually, uh, I'm a little bit older than Jesse. I'd like to retire at some point. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, not anytime soon. Don't get me wrong, and but it's sooner rather than later. That's for sure. Well, I just appreciate you both being here. And how can our listeners subscribe to Compass? And how can they connect with uh, the two of you? You can go to uh, compassnox.com. There's subscription information right there. And our contact information is also on the website. And uh, feel free to reach out to us at any time. Uh, lots of people do. And we also, I'll just mention for people who aren't subscribers, or wouldn't know about this, but we have a uh, subscriber-only Facebook group 
that is kind of our equivalent, I guess, of a letters to the editor page. We wanted to provide some place for readers to interact and respond to things we wrote without having to deal with comment sections on our website and all of those other things. And so that's a place for people who are subscribers to to engage with us. And we try to be responsive to things there as well. Yeah. One thing about the subscriptions is that we generally have one fairly lengthy story per day that we we post on our website. And then we mentioned earlier, we have this daily newsletter. The daily newsletter is actually more the bread and butter of, of, of what we do because it, it's not just links to other stories or links to stories that we do. And I highly recommend it. If you live in Knox County, Tennessee, definitely go to compassknox.com and subscribe. It's well worth the money and you're going to get more local news, hyper local news than you will from anywhere else when it comes to what's going on where we live and work. So thanks again for being here with us and for supporting our podcast. Listeners, you can follow us on Twitter, hashtag misinterpreted, and that's misinterpreted. And for visibility's sake, please capitalize the PR. You can follow me on Twitter at Katie Fletcher. You can follow our agency on Twitter at Fletcher PR, and you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. So we hope to hear from you. Drop us a line if there's a topic that you'd like us to cover related to communications and marketing and PR and journalism and just business in general. We'd love to hear from you. You can email me at kfletcher at fletchermarketingpr.com. Until next time, have a great day and happy fall. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.